Welcome back to the Bioverse, where we explore the universe through the eyes of biology. Wow, that feels really good to say. It has been so long since the last episode of this podcast, but today I'm actually very excited to present to you a new series. Um, This series is called A Deep Dive into the Brain, and we are going to be exploring the brain in all of its glory. Today's episode will be a pilot episode where I will lay down some very basic, basic foundations. And this episode will be split into two parts. Part one will be a list of ways that we studied the brain. And part two will be me sharing with you um, some things that I've learned about the brain through a webinar. These are some notes that I've taken and I'd like to share with you because they are so cool. The brain is a fascinating piece of kit and I am honoured to say that I have actually got such big aspirations in medicine to be studying and hopefully operating on this brain as I do plan to get into neurosurgery. Before we begin today's episode, um, I'd like to give you a small update on my plants. (laughs) As you all know, uh, in the last episode I spoke about having a small plant in a vase. That plant has currently grown massive roots. I think I'll be keeping it within the vase because honestly these roots look so cool. Um, And the second plant, the autograph tree that I mentioned, has actually started to sprout some new leaves. I've also been delving deep within myself and my green thumb and have actually started the process of um, germinating, started the process of germinating some jackfruit seeds and some bell pepper seeds. So I'll let you know how that goes. Let's get into it. So the first part, I'd like to just share a list of ways that you can study the brain. Um, There are four things that I've got down here. There's a functional MRI scans or fMRIs. There are behavioral tests. There are ways of studying damaged or diseased brains. And there is neural tracing. So the first one we're going to go through is functional MRIs. And these map changes in the brain as they are happening. So there's a little bit of a difference from uh, MRIs to functional MRIs. MRIs just take a snapshot. Functional MRIs um, can practically record a video. It's not exactly that. And you know what? Maybe people who operate MRI scanners are going to cringe as I've just said that. But uh, they can map changes in the brain as they're happening. For example, the, the reason that this is very helpful in studying the brain is because if a person is thinking something, uh, thinking of something that makes them happy, and that part of the brain lights up in the fMRI scanner, uh, we can associate that that part of the brain is to do with either emotions, or thoughts and such. So, if a person of thinking of, is something thinking of something that makes them happy, uh, the fMRI machines can detect activity within those parts of the brain, and we can make possibly correlative or causal relationships between these two bits of the brain, these two bits, um, the the feeling and the part of the brain that lit up. Just as a side tangent, I'd like to just express to you my excitement for how MRI scanners work. Um, Just a very basic description of it. So we have hydrogen atoms within our body, um, in water, in acids, in, in many different molecules. And these hydrogen atoms are naturally just spinning in random directions, always. Um, That's just how atoms work. So when a magnetic field within the MRI scanner is activated, these hydrogen atoms start spinning in the same direction. So all of them orientate into the same direction. So they're still spinning. 
Then when a radio wave is actually activated, these hydrogen atoms all spin to uh, all turn to a certain point, so they stop spinning completely. Then, when the radio frequency and when the magnetic uh, field are turned off, the hydrogen atoms return to their natural spin, which releases energy, and the MRI scanner can capture this energy and present it as a photo. You may have noticed in MRI scanners there are lighter patches and darker patches, and this is because parts of our body, different parts of our body, have different concentrations of H plus ions. So this means you get different shades of grey uh, within the image, which I think is absolutely amazing because it creates a depth and allows you to see a more quote-unquote 3D image. The next way to study the brain is behavioural tests, because brain controls behaviour. This is something that psychology students will be more familiar with and can tell you a better description. I don't study psychology, um, but this is a brief finding that I have uh, explored, and that is Dr. Ivan Pavlov's discovery. And he actually brought in the concept of classical conditioning. So what he did was he presented the stimulus of food to his dog. And every time he presented the food, he also presented another stimulus of a bell. What the dog had learned to do was associate the sound of the bell with the presentation of food. So whenever the bell was rang, the dog actually started salivating. So its salivary glands, you know, acted up and saliva was produced. This brought in the concept of classical conditioning and made us realise that we can, start, we can make associations like this with two completely different stimuli if they're presented within the same period of time. The third way to study the brain is damaged or diseased brains. This is a more analytic part of it, where you're looking at the physical brain, you're studying cell tissue, you're comparing the discrepancies between a healthy and an unhealthy brain. Looking at a malfunctioning brain will actually help us to understand where the things have gone wrong, and we can actually explore its effects, its consequential effects, on the human body. Uh, it's a way to actually explore diseases and how they affect the brain and the body. Because of studying the cell tissue, we can zoom right in using high-powered microscopes to explore the size and the shape of neurons to build a picture of what they are. And the last way to study the brain is neural tracing. Neural tracing actually involves the introduction of a virus with a fluorescent dye attached to it within the system of the brain. They are taken up by the neurons and the virus uses, utilizes the transportation system of the neuron and we can actually can trace the exact individual neurons that are used in certain bits of the brain whenever certain things are happening and with this we can actually explore which neural pathways are activated uh, this was actually presented to me in a webinar about um, the formation of memories which is something that I absolutely have to share with you and that's going to be on another episode so stay tuned for that this brings us on to part two of the episode where I'm going to give you a very, very basic idea of the anatomy of the brain or neuroanatomy. Um, so there are four main sections of the brain. The frontal lobe, which is involved in the decision-making and personality aspect. The parietal lobe, which is involved in touch perception and movement control. The occipital lobe, which is involved in processing light and, and visual in information. And the temporal lobe, which is involved in smell and taste perception and language. 
There are actually two parts in the temporal lobe that I have been presented with too, which is the Bokas and Wernicke's region. So the Bokas region is involved in speaking and articulation, and the Wernicke's region is involved in comprehension and meaning. And these two bits, they work very well together. Um, for example, if the Bokas region wasn't working, you'd be able to comprehend the meaning of words, but you would not be able to articulate properly. Um, and if the Wernicke's region of the brain wasn't working, you'd be able to articulate and speak well, but whatever you say would have no meaning or comprehension. So during this webinar that I was part of, we actually zoomed more closely into parts of the brain, and I've actually got five here to explore, to share with you today. So we've got the hypothalamus, which I think a lot of people are very, very uh, aware of. It links the nervous system to the endocrine system, which is the hormone system within our body via the pituitary gland. Hypothalamus synthesizes and secretes certain neurohormones called hypothalamic releasing hormones, which stimulate or inhibit the release of pituitary hormones. Then there's also the basal ganglia. So the basal ganglia is a group of neuron cell bodies which are involved in the control of movement, which consists of the pallidus, externus and internus. The cerebellum, also known as the baby brain, has large neurons. So these neurons are much larger than the neurons you find anywhere else in the body. And this is why alcohol has a very large effect on the cerebellum because of the large neuron cells. Alcohol will actually cause you to over-exaggerate your movements. These exaggerated movements are actually very similar to those who have cerebellar ataxia, which gives people things like unsteady walks and, again, exaggerating their movements and uncoordinated movements. And then we have the medulla, which is the most, it's the most important bit of the brain. Like, no comment, no question there. This thing performs involuntary actions. So these are the actions that we can't control, like your heart rate like your breathing, and we wouldn't be able to live without it because of the functions that it performs. It also helps to transfer neural messages from the brain to the spinal cord. And the last bit of the brain that we explored was the pons. It controls facial expressions, dreams, and its main functions are sleep and arousal. So these are the five bits of the brain that we studied, and I definitely will be researching more. Um, and I urge you to research more, and I'll definitely be sharing with these with you. The next bit that we actually studied this neuroanatomy webinar was how does the brain actually communicate? And a very basic description of it is obviously the neurons send impulses along the length by generating an electrical charge. These, these electrical charges are caused by movements of ions. So this is you're getting a you're getting a very brief physics lesson here. So the two ions are called action potential ions and they are sodium and potassium. Sodium is pumped within into the cell and potassium is pumped out of the cell. This maintains a difference in charge from within the neuron and outside of the neuron and can allow the neuron to send impulses down its length. The neurons are also connected by synapses, which are gaps within the neurons, and these allow chemicals to be transported, for example, dopamine, serotonin, and many other chemicals like it. So that was a very, very basic discussion about the growth structure of the brain, um, the anatomy, and how to study it. Thank you for listening to me waffle about this. Um, 
it, it excited me a lot, just how we actually study the brain and, you know, some bits of the brain and what their functions are. There are obviously much more bits of the brain. And as I research and as I find out, I will eventually share with you guys. So maybe take this as a part one. And I definitely will add another part to this episode specifically, where I actually present to you more findings um, that I have about the neuroanatomy and researching the brain. But for now, thank you for listening to me waffle about biology. Um, so this series on the brain is going to be a fortnightly series, which gives me time to set up interviews with people, as I have got guests planned for this series. So stay tuned for the next episode, and I'll see you.